0: Thank you for listening to a student ministry sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about the student ministry, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's student ministry sermon. What's up guys, how's it going? My name's Elijah, I get to be one of the ministers here on staff, and I get to share with you a little bit about the life of David. So we've been talking about David uh, for the last couple of weeks and just talking about really how uh, we are most human when we are most like God. And so we're going to continue to dive into his life, the story, the narrative of who David is and how God encountered him. And so I'm going to really just kind of read through Second Samuel 6, 6. It's a little bit long, um, but it's a really good story. It's really compelling. It has some really amazing things going on within it. So just stick with me, and then we're going to unpack this thing together. It says this, David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala and Judah to bring up there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the Lord, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. And when David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said how the king of Israel has distinguished himself Today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. But David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. Now, this is an interesting story because it's got a lot of crazy things going on. A guy dies in it, so that's kind of crazy. But at the end of it, David just thrusts himself physically in this amazing, obedient worship of God. He does, just throws his hands in the air. And we've seen this before. We've seen people worship with their hands in the air. And there's lots of reasons to put your hands in the air. We got lots of reasons in our society to do that. Okay, what do you do if someone kicks a field goal, right? Hands up right? What do you do if you want someone to pass you the ball? Right here, yeah? Uh, who's, who likes roller coasters in here? Yeah? All right. So here's the deal. I'm one of the people that I am going to hold on for dear life. I will not take my hands off, okay? But who are the people in the room who are like, no, I'm putting my hands up the whole way? Good for you guys. If anything happens, you will probably die, but at least I have a chance, Okay. Uh, Have you seen cops or like a crime show? You know, we see those things and, you know, they're like, come out, hands up. We got you surrounded, right? Guy comes out, please don't shoot me. I'm okay. Take me in. All right. I'm good. One of the things that I've gotten to experience, and I love this, is I'll come home and my child will see me and he'll be like, dad, what up? And he'll run to me. he will lift his arms up and I'll take him up in my arms and we'll play choo choos. That's what we do every day. The kid is obsessed with choo choos. Okay. Uh, But we raise our hands for a lot of different reasons. And when we come into a place like this, people can raise their hands and we don't know why. Well, today I want to talk about why. David threw his entire body into worship because he experienced a joy so immense, so powerful that he began to not care about what anybody thought except for the God he was doing it for. What would it be like to experience that kind of joy? to be so enraptured in joy that you would allow yourself to become humiliated knowing that you did not care about how people saw you anymore. What would it be like to have that kind of joy? Well, tonight what we're gonna do is we're gonna talk about how David got it and then we're gonna talk about how we can get it, all right? So how did David get this joy? Well, David just came off a military victory And he just got crowned king. So things are going pretty well for that guy, all right? He decides he's going to grab 30,000 men, soldiers, warriors, and they're going to march through the desert. Now, this isn't a crusade. This is a parade. They are marching through, and they have their eyes set on the Ark of the Covenant. They're going to bring that thing home and put it in their city. Why? What is the Ark of the Covenant? Well, here's me explaining what the Ark of the Covenant is. This is the Ark of the Covenant, and it was the most prized possession of the Israelites. God gave Moses instructions on top of Mount Sinai of how to build it. It was going to be 3.9 feet long, 2.3 feet wide and tall. And it was made from acacia wood and then coated with gold. On top, you can see these heavenly beings, these angels, they were sent to do and carry out the will of God. And then you can see these rods on the sides that, that they would use to carry it so that they wouldn't ever actually have to touch the Ark. Inside the ark were reminders of God's provision, power, and purpose. It contained the Ten Commandments, the manna that God used to feed the people as they traveled through the wilderness, and Aaron's staff that had sprouted like a flower. But the most important thing the ark did for the people of God was act as a representation of his presence. The items within were reminders of what that presence meant, power, truth, holiness. But those items also reminded the people what they weren't. They couldn't keep the commandments. They weren't satisfied by God and the manna that he provided. And they rebelled against him. They deserved death, but God didn't want that for them. He desired to be with them. A holy God wanted to be in the presence of an unholy people. So justice was still necessary. And instead of God pouring out his wrath on his people, sacrifices were put in place. And the ark was the most holy altar of all. Once a year, the high priest would go in and offer a death of an innocent animal that would cover the sins of the people of Israel. This was the only way that God could dwell in the midst. And even then, it was reduced to this one location. Only one person could interact with it a year. And even then, it was was a scary process to touch the ark, especially outside of the bounds of sacrificial procedure would be to interact with something so holy it would crush you. So the ark became a symbol, not only of the presence of God, but of his holiness and power. That power often helps the Israelites overcome their enemies and help their society to flourish. It gave meaning to a people that otherwise would have been wiped out of existence by the surrounding enemies that stood against them. This was a symbol of the power, the presence, holiness of God. Hey, thank you. Yes, that's me explaining the Ark. That is the Ark of the Covenant. Now, if you have seen Indiana Jones you know, that thing is lost, right? We don't know where it is. Um, And just like history in, in general, we don't have to watch Indiana Jones to know it's lost, but it's gone. We don't know where it's at. But they knew where it was at and they wanted it. Why? David believed that if he could bring this symbol, this great, amazing national symbol back to his city, it would not only solidify him as king, it would remind every single person of the God who put him there. David understands that by maintaining his kingdom and power, that if he's going to maintain it, he needs the God that possesses so much of it. And so he believes if he can get this ark and bring it back, it will fulfill the desires of his heart. He will have the joy that will make him dance. So he goes and picks it up and they bring it back on a cart. And this is significant because in Exodus and Numbers, um, Moses makes it clear that it was to be carried on their shoulders by those rods. This one line continues to to communicate, helps us understand that this entire scene is messed up from the start. They are not paying attention and being obedient to the way God wants this thing to be handled because they're not doing it for themselves. They are using God instead of wanting to be used by him. They are using this as a way, as a means to get joy instead of seeing God as the object of it. Have you guys ever seen Harry Potter? Is anybody Harry Potter fans in here, anybody? Boo. Boo. Oh my gosh. You guys don't know. You don't know. Harry Potter's the best. All right. And here's what happens in the first book. Harry discovers this mirror. Ah, he looks in the mirror and what does he see? His family. And now this is important because if you know the story, you know that Harry lost his parents when he was a baby. He never met him before. And so this amazes him. He even begins to wonder if his parents can be brought back. And so he goes and he grabs his friend, Ron, and Ron comes and he looks in the mirror and Harry's like, dude, you gotta see this. I found, look, my parents are in this thing. And Ron's like, no, they're not. Look at me, I'm valedictorian. I'm sitting on the shoulders of my classmates and I am enjoying the heroic victory of the sporting events in the school. Everybody loves me. And Harry's like, what? You don't see my parents? He's like, no. No. But Harry sees it and he becomes infatuated with this mirror. He just keeps coming back, looking in it, seeing his parents. Finally, Dumbledore comes, the wizard of wizards, the wise and humble. And he comes and he says to Harry, Do you know what this mirror is? And Harry goes, No, I don't. He says, This mirror will show you the deepest desires of your heart. That's why you see your parents. Because deep down inside, Harry had this innate longing to belong, to be loved, to be known. But what Ron saw was something different. What Ron saw was status and popularity. What Dumbledore begins to explain to Harry is that great men have wasted away staring in this mirror at the shadows of the joy that they thought they could have if they just had this one thing. If you stared into that mirror... What would you see? What would you begin seeing what the deepest desires of your hearts would be? I believe that if King David looked in this mirror, he would have seen himself as king. He would have seen himself as king. But he needs one more thing, the Ark of the Covenant. And so they begin to transport this thing the wrong way and the oxen stumbles. And Uzzah was one of the men in charge of the transportation. And so as the ark goes and it stumbles, Uzzah goes out to reach it, to stabilize it. And as soon as he touches it, he dies. The mere brush, the mere, he just brushes the thing with his hand and he turns cold. And David is beside himself. How, how could this happen? And he asks this question, how could the ark come to a man like me? How could the ark come to me? And what he's really asking is how can a man like me deserve a God like that? And we all ask this question. What happens when the thing that you desire most does not desire you? We all begin to ask this question. And I don't even need to give examples because we all have this person, this thing in our life that if we believe if we just had that, we would begin to experience the happiness and joy that only God can give. We fight for it, and we claw for it. And what David begins to see is that he could never be in possession of that thing. He's not worthy enough for it. So he goes home. He leaves the ark and he goes back to Jerusalem, not knowing what it would mean for his life or for his kingdom, but then he gets word. He leaves the ark at someone's house and over the the next three months, that man's house would begin being blessed. David is ecstatic. So he runs back to the place where he left the ark. And he's going to get it and he's going to finish the job and he's going to bring it back home. And when he does this, he continues to move it forward. And it says he celebrated and he sang and a joyous outbreak began to take place. Why? Because regardless of how David saw the anger of God break out, the blessing of God was a sign of how he was beginning to see the grace of God break out. And when he began to take this ark home, it was not only a sign that God had forgiven him, but that God desired him. David could finally see how God was not the means to joy, but the source of it. And he dances and he worships. Why? Because we all want to tell the people and express the way we feel when something amazing happens. When we have a relationship, when we win a prize, when we begin to see an amazing show, a new Netflix show that our friends have to know about. We will never, we never wanna keep things in when they begin to move our life in a way that we have joy. We wanna tell everybody. And so I believe C.S. Lewis had it right when he says that we want to express our joy because it not only expresses it, it completes it. So how do we get it? How do we get this joy? We see that David had this kind of joy because he began to experience And celebrate the presence and power of God. But he did so because that power and presence was right here. What's the issue? We don't have the ark. We don't know where it went. How can we ever begin to experience the power and presence of God if we don't have the ark? That is the question that we must begin to answer. And even more than that, even if we did have the ark. I mean, a guy touched it and he died. How could a people like us deserve a God like that? A similar way that David did. Because after a man was crushed, David left in despair, but after three months discovered a blessing. And friends, God has made a blessing that we can never afford, that we can never earn. Because when Jesus Christ came into the world, he was the power and the presence and the revelation of God. And the Holy once for all, approached the unholy and we put our hands on him and we beat him and we mocked him and we crucified him. But three days later, that man rose again and the blessing was poured out once more. So why do we worship? Why do we sing? Why do we come to a God that would ever come to us in that way? Because the power and the presence of God has made itself available. And now we can worship and in doing so enjoy God, we can become humiliated just like David and allow ourselves to come before that God and give him everything. You may um, be here for the first time tonight. It might be your first time at church. It may very well be your hundredth time at church. But the truth is one of the things that we want to do tonight is challenge you to raise your hands because the reality is that worship is not merely the expression of the joy that is inside, it is the completion of it. And so if you want to enjoy God, if you want to know a joy that is everlasting, fulfilling, and that will never leave, you have to worship. There's no other way. And so we wanna invite you and challenge you to raise your hands during the song, to begin teaching yourself a posture that makes you feel uncomfortable that makes you feel humiliated, that moves you beyond yourself because it may be that you're in this room tonight and you're like the child going to your father, hands up, ready to just be known and belonged and loved because you just don't know where else you'll find that. Or it may be that you are the criminal and that you have begun to acknowledge that there are things about your life that you have done that you're just ready to give back to God. And you're ready to come out with hands up, surrendered, ready to allow yourself to be moved and transformed and healed. Or it may be that you're finally ready to just take your hands off the bar and to experience the ride and the presence and the, and the preciousness of an encounter with God. I don't care how long you raise your hands for. But the challenge is that now and forevermore, you would become even more undignified than this. So what we want to invite you to do is to stand and raise your arms. And you're free to put them down when you want to. Thank you for listening to a student ministry sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about the student ministry or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.